All right, gentlemen, we are, uh, we're at time. So we can get started whenever you like. <laughs> we left off on uh, Matthew chapter 20 with the laborers in the vineyard, which of course, those of you who were here on Sunday know that in the one-year lectionary, the historic lectionary of the church, this last Sunday's gospel was the laborers in the vineyard. So we uh, not only did we discuss that last Monday, but then you heard a sermon on it this uh, last Sunday. So from Matthew 20, then, we just thumb forward to Matthew 21, and you're going to see that this is the triumphal entry. So Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem and does so for the final time before his passion. And it's in the context of this Holy Week that we then get the next nexus of parables. And those begin at verse 28 of chapter 21 with the parable of the two sons. But what you'll see if you look immediately prior to the parable of the two sons is you'll see that it is simply a continuation of what Jesus was saying in the previous section. The chapter numbers, the verse numbers, the breaks, the subheadings are all added in after the fact. You have to remember that as you are looking through the scriptures. So where we'll want to pick up tonight is at chapter 21, verse 23, so that we can see and understand these parables in light of their context, as Jesus is going to be teaching these parables in the temple. Let's begin with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we are in the season of pre-Lent, making our Lenten preparations to focus our attention on those things that Christ himself makes us mindful of, prayer and fasting and the giving of alms, we ask your blessing upon us as we study your word, as we study these parables of our Lord Jesus, our great teacher and master. May he enlighten our hearts and minds. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might benefit richly from this teaching. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Okay, so again, the context is Holy Week. And at verse 23, we see that Jesus has entered the temple. And when he has done so, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. So we have a little bit of a rabbinic tete-a-tete here, but we also see that Jesus is not afraid of being confrontational and engaging in argument. So he has set this up, and then he gives his question, verse 25. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And obviously it's clear enough. Does this come from God, or is this of human invention? We are told that they discussed it among themselves, saying, 
If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So we see that they are afraid of the crowd. And this continues to be a theme. And they find themselves trapped, obviously. Verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So there is then the entry point to his further question, what do you think, where he's going to invite them in then to consider these parables. And one of the themes we're going to see is that they will end up rendering judgment on the basis of the parables. And of course, that will end up being them rendering judgment upon themselves. Which, by the way, and completely as an aside, is probably something like a foretaste of the final judgment. When you have all the witty, witty basement atheists with all their arguments against God, and God will say, hey, no problem. I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. <laughs> and then, by the way, maybe listen to this parable, and they'll end up condemning themselves. So a little foretaste of how that's going to go down. Let's just say that Jesus isn't sweating bullets about any of those encounters. All right, so right into the parable of the two sons. What do you think? Now, this is friendly. He's inviting them in in a rabbinic sort of way uh, to consider the story and the implications of that story that he's going to tell. We are later told um, in verse 33 by Jesus himself that he considers this to be a parable even though he doesn't say it right off the bat. A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. We see once again that theme of the vineyard. We're going to see the vineyard used synonymously for the kingdom of God and later the kingdom of the heavens. Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. I mean, overly literal, but would be, I do not desire to. I don't want to. But afterward, and the ESV says he changed his mind, and that's just great. It's not really repented in the technical sense, but later he regretted it. And that is a kind of theme we see in Jesus' parables. You can think of... um, the son uh, who goes off and spends his inheritance in profligacy, he comes to himself or he comes to his senses. That's a parallel action to this first son who comes to regret what he said to his father. So he changed his mind and went. And that's really the material point is that where Where is the son, even though he told his father, I don't want to, I'm not going to, ultimately he ends up there in the vineyard. Obvious parallels with the previous and last uh, parable that Jesus told of the laborers in the vineyard. So we're back at the vineyard again. Okay, then verse 30. 
And he went to the second son. I don't know why the ESV says the other. It's just the second son. And he said the same thing. And this son answered, uh, I go, sir, or I go, Lord, but did not go. And again, that's the key is no matter what came out of his mouth, did he end up in the vineyard or not? No. That's really the material point. So then Jesus asks, which of these two did the will of his father? They, again, this is the Pharisees and the chief priests, the elders. They said the first namely the first son, that son who said that he would not go, but then went. And they're right. They've given the correct answer. Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. All right, so then Jesus gives them the interpretation, gives us the interpretation of the parable. The Pharisees and the tax collectors are those that by their very deeds have rejected the Father, and yet they still ended up in the vineyard. And Jesus is going to clarify concretely what that means. They went to John the Baptist to be baptized. So the, 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 um, excuse me, the, um, prostitutes, and that's really what it is, the, and the um, tax collectors are the first son. They say we're not going to go. There's apparent disobedience or even real disobedience up front, but then they regret it, they change their mind, and they go. Okay, verse 32 gives the explanation, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. So now we have it rounded out that these chief priests and elders of the people are those who pay lip service to God. Yes, we'll go. Yes, we'll do whatever you say. But when John the Baptist came baptizing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, they say, we're not going. So then you can see that what their answer is when they say that the first son is the one who does the will of his father, they've just condemned themselves. And Jesus here spells that out. In the next one, more subtly, he won't spell it out, but he does, in fact, spell it out that they have condemned themselves. Now, the kingdom of God, the vineyard, you can see, is an earthly, present tense, temporal reality. They're not going in. Meanwhile, so it's not heaven per se. It's the reign of God on earth, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes have entered it but they have not. This is very much the last first and the first last theme played out yet again. Okay, so last uh, sentence then, and this will be the latter half of looks like verse 32. And even when you saw it, so even when you, the chief priests and elders, saw the regret on the part of the prostitutes and tax collectors and saw how they went into those waters for a baptism 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Even then, you did not afterward change your minds. You did not come to regret that you would not go and believe John. And of course, John's baptism is preparatory because ultimately what John's going to do unto those he has baptized is say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's preparing them by washing them and then directing them to the Christ. So in their rejection of of John, um, then they are condemned. It's their rejection of Christ. Okay, I think straightforward, hopefully straightforward. Yeah, relatively so as far as the parables go, I think. But are there any questions or anything uh, strike you as, as off or confusing? All right. So again, we see the, we see the parables functioning. Um, and maybe help me out, guys. Those of you who are online, you probably are going to have to say something because you're not in my visual field. So feel free, to, uh, feel free to unmute and just get our attention if you need to uh, make a comment or ask a question. All right, so in the same way that the parables have, have worked by those who will reject his plain word, then he'll preach to them in parables so that they don't get it. Here's yet another facet. He'll preach to them in parables, and through those very parables, they will end up condemning themselves. On to the next parable. Good enough? Okay. Verse 33, here another parable. Um, strictly speaking in the Greek, it says a man who was a master of the house and oikodespotes. We spent some time on that before as, as a Christ figure, a term usually referring to Christ only once referring to his disciples. Be that as it may, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. So the second one with a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased or rented it to Georgois, which is a combination of geo, earth, and ergos, workers, workers of the earth or farmers. Tenants is a little weak because in our our thinking, you know, it's just... What's a tenant? It's that person that you, uh, that Gavin Newsom lets stay in your rental property and you can't get them out. You can't collect rent. You haven't been able to for three years. So, okay. So not, not only a tenant, I mean, they do live there and work there, but um, farmers or workers of this in this vineyard. Now that description already gives you pause, especially because he's talking to the elders and the chief priests and he's doing so in the temple. But even if you didn't have that, Jesus description here is weird and should stand out to you because he doesn't describe the vineyard in this detail, uh, even in the preceding parable. What is, what is he up to? (laughs) And this actually comes from Isaiah chapter five. In fact, a number of texts that Jesus, a number of the things that Jesus is teaching are going to be allusions to teachings in Isaiah. And arguably, anytime Jesus mentions a vineyard period, it's this allusion to Isaiah 5, where God is 
constructing his vineyard as his people Israel. So I know it's going to be a little obnoxious, but let's take a quick field trip there just because I do think it's such an important frame for understanding what Jesus has to say about the vineyard. So leave a bookmark or a finger or a hand here and just flip back to Isaiah chapter 5. And we're, we're only going to take a, just a very brief superficial look at this so you can get the theme. This theme of fruitfulness, though, of course, is pervasive and is everywhere in the teachings and parables of Jesus. Okay, so at Isaiah 5, verse 1, we won't have to go far. You have this poetic hymn. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. All this sound familiar? We're starting to? That's why Jesus adds the detail in. He's drawing their attention to Isaiah And what he's preaching and proclaiming to them is thoroughly scripturally based. So he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Bitter grapes unfit for making wine, which is really what a vineyard is for. Of course, you can probably tell that in the name itself, a wine yard, a vineyard, a vineyard. Um, those linguistic connections. But suffice it to say, he wasn't supplying the local Costco with bushels of grapes. That wasn't really the point. The point is wine. And of course, you can think then in all the different ways the scriptures allude to this. And the, you can think of like even the phraseology of the wine press of God's wrath. It's a sign of judgment. Um, but you can think also of Christ in that wine press of God's wrath in our place. And what comes forth then is ultimately the wine that is his blood, that is the wine of salvation, the blood of salvation. So that imagery finds its telos, its high point in the passion narrative, where it's Christ in, the, in that place providing the wine. Okay, and then these. What follows is an indictment, and it's it's worth um, it's worth hitting these verses as well. And so, anyways, what's the point in Isaiah? Look, I did everything I possibly could and more. I went above and beyond. In I mean, I gave like, like why did good grapes not come out? Right? You had the right soil. You had the right fertilizer. You had the right environment. I mean, almost insanely, obscenely so. There's a, there's a tower in the middle of it. There's a fence around it. Like everything is absolutely perfect. And when the fruit came forth, it was imperfect. It was wild grapes. So here you can see then the Lord's indictment. And now verse three, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? that I have not done in it. 
When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. All right. So that'll give you the background then um, for what Jesus is going to be talking about when he refers to the vineyard, but especially here in the parable of the tenants. And then that is also informative as we get, we'll get into, and we're, we're going to do this into the fifth and final discourse, chapters 23 and 25, which is the Olivet discourse or the judgment discourse. We're going to see how Jesus will refer very much to these kinds of motifs in regard to Jerusalem proper. Look, I did everything for you. And that's, you know, the tower and the wall and everything. And yet it bore wild grapes who rejected me, who bore me no fruit, and thus I will have it destroyed. And that's Jesus' prophecy then fulfilled in 70 AD by when the Romans sweep in and do that very thing. So, I mean, which is, by the way, a very, very underrated proof. I mean, as if we needed more, maybe that's the point, but a very underrated proof that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is and prophesied that some 40 years later exactly what happens in the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple, never to be rebuilt again. I mean, it's remarkable, just astonishing. Okay, so I think that's all we need to do in Isaiah, unless uh, you want to talk about anything there. We're free to flip back to Matthew and take a look then what he says. Obviously, the parable is going to be a little different, but it is important for us to have that background. Okay, so just once more at verse 33, there was a... Ruler of the house who planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to farmers, and went into another country. So he goes away. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his slaves to the farmers to get his fruit. And the tenants took his slaves, the farmers took his slaves or servants, beat one. Now, the language there is to flay or to flog or to scourge. And I'm inclined to think that this was fatal. So he beat one, he killed another, just outright slayed him, and then stoned another, which is a stoning is always a stoning unto death. So I think all three of these result in death. I mean, it's a minor point. It doesn't matter, but that's the only creativity these guys show. Verse 36. Now, this is, again, in Jesus' parables, something almost always goes wonky. And here's here's that point. 
Again, he sent other servants, other slaves, more than the first. No one in his right mind would ever do that. But this guy does. Now, of course, what is that instructive of? It's, of course, instructive of God's grace. Instructive in an Old Testament sense of how God sent wave after wave of prophets and prophets and more prophets. And by the way, the the prophets that we have, their texts recorded for us in the scriptures, I mean, are just a, are a tiny, tiny minority of the actual prophets that were and that God sent. We can't lose sight of that. I think sometimes we get a little skewed. It's like, well, there was Isaiah and there was Ezekiel, and maybe there were you know, some 12 other guys, the minor prophets, and you know, a handful of them over the course of the centuries. No, if you go back and read the text, you'll see that the prophets of God are everywhere, and there are many, many who are anonymous and not named. And then we simply have these texts remaining of them. So again, we're left to meditate on the mercy of God that Generation after generation after generation, he sends his servants out only to be flayed and slain and stoned. Okay, so verse 36, again, he sent out other servants. And, you know, you don't need to, we don't need to make too much, but it is the root word for apostle, the sending of the slaves. I wouldn't make too much of that, but it's the apostelane language. So again, he apostled other slaves, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Well, as Jesus tells the story, it gets more outrageous still. Finally, he sent his son. Why on earth would he do that? I mean, no one in real life would ever do this. But Jesus is telling a story, and he's inviting them to a dialogue. He's inviting them to render judgment upon the characters in the story. So this man then sends his son to them, saying, they will respect, honor my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to him themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. The idea being that, you know, the old man's son is going to, Receive this, but if there's no son, when, he, when the old man dies, it's ours. That's their plan. It's not terribly well thought out, but that's not really important for Jesus' point. Now, this next line is very significant because, again, it's prophetic. Jesus knows exactly where he's going and what's going to happen, and we can't lose sight of that. So as he's telling the parable in verse 39, and they took him, the son, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Where is Christ slain? In Jerusalem? Now outside of it. And a big deal is made that he is thrown outside of the gate, Golgotha's outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus knows and has written this in to his parable. Now this is akin to, um, remember when... uh, Nathan goes to David and tells him the parable of the little ewe lamb, the rich man who slaughters the ewe lamb, who was beloved to the man. It was, his, it was his only lamb, and the rich man with many flocks comes and takes that lamb and cooks it for dinner. 
<laughs> and David is so pissed off that <laughs> he says, that, where is that man? He's going to be put to death right now. And then, you know, Nathan says, you are that man. A stunning moment of where through the parable, he elicits a self-condemnation. Now, David's heart's very different than these men's hearts, but the strategy of Jesus is the same. He's going to elicit from them a self-condemnation. All right, here it comes. Here's the punchline, verse 40. When therefore, and the language is just so much more powerful in the original, curious to Ampolonos, when the Lord of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? <laughs> and their answer is so much less pristine than the ESV puts it. And they answered him, you will put those right. No, in, in the Greek, it's much more like this. Like they're disgusted at this story. And they say, wretches. I mean, bastards. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're so ticked off. Bastards, wretchedly, you know, wretches, wretchedly will he, you know, bastards, ruthlessly will he. And now it's not just slay them or kill them or stone them, destroy them, wipe them off the face of the earth, scatter their remains type of, I mean, this is like, that's their sentence upon these wicked farmers, these wicked tenants that would do such a thing to such a gracious man. What if Jesus had said, you are they? (laughs) He might have been crucified right there. But he does, in fact, do this very thing. He just does it in a subtle rabbinic way. But that is, in a sense, the end of the episode, okay, or the end of a chapter, almost. Yeah, maybe that's the right way to put it. When they pronounce judgment upon themselves, which now they've done a second time. Which son did the will of his father? They said the first. They've pronounced judgment upon themselves. What should the Lord of the vineyard do to these wicked tenants? They've pronounced judgment upon themselves. Now, Jesus is going to, instead of just pulling the Nathan and saying, you are those wicked tenants, he's going to pivot, and he is, in fact, going to identify them, the tenants, with the elders and chief priests. He's going to do so in a much less confrontational way. So if that's verse 42, then Jesus pivots and says, have you never read in the scriptures? Now, this is Psalm 118, and it's pretty much quoted for verbatim. I don't think it's worthwhile going back um, and seeing it in its native context. But here's what he says. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, now this follows a way that Jesus is doing theology. I mean, it's indicative of the entire way he does theology, but particularly in Holy Week and particularly in this temple where he's directly quoting scriptures. I mean, really, that cannot be it's something I think we too often miss that this, that the debates Jesus is having with the chief priests and elders is a debate over the scriptures. It is a deeply theological debate. It's very much analogous to the kinds of debates we would have in the church. So you can glimpse back, even when he's outside of the temple, back in verse 16 of this chapter, and see the same parallel. 
um, where Jesus says to them, uh, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants? So this idea of challenging them, like, are you not aware of the scriptures which say? It's the basis of everything he's doing. Okay, so likewise here, Psalm 118, the stone, who's this? That's the Messiah, namely Christ, that the builders rejected. Who are the builders? The builders would be the chief priests and elders in this case. And the builders have rejected this stone, but even though they've rejected it, he has somehow become the cornerstone, the most important stone. Usually commentators take this to mean like the stone upon which all the rest of the building, sort of the weight of it goes. And then the explanation, this was Yahweh's doing. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That is to say, all the way back in Psalm 118, centuries and centuries before this, it was prophesied in Scripture, in Psalm 118, that the cornerstone upon which God would build his entire household is precisely that which the builders themselves rejected. The Jewish rulers themselves rejected Christ, but Christ would nonetheless become the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing, and it is marvelous. Marvelous doesn't just mean like, I don't know, the spaghetti is marvelous or something like that, but marvelous means like we're gobsmacked, we're speechless. This has filled us with awe and terror at the impossibility of this. Okay, that's what is meant by it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so then Jesus, after, I think, rhetorically softening the blow, but nonetheless, I mean, stating with just a different text of Scripture and a different motif that, you know, kind of that meme, are, are we the baddies? You know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, here's the baddies. <laughs> okay, so here then in 43, he returns, and it's the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God and the vineyard used interchangeably, as we've seen in this section. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And of course, I think needless to say, but I'll say it anyway, the use are plural here. And given to an ethne, a people, producing its fruits. This is a very clear identification of the Gentiles. It's going to be, so the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from the Jews proper and be given to the ethne, the Gentiles, who will produce its fruits. All right, now Jesus has woven in another scripture here in verse 44, this from Isaiah chapter 8, 14, and he paraphrases it sufficient. I don't think we have to go back there. But he returns to this idea of the stone. And the one who falls on this stone, the one who is tripped over it, scandalized by it, made to topple, will be shattered, broken into pieces. And this is a parallel statement, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So this is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. One receives Christ or one stumbles over him or the stone falls upon him. Either way, it is life having him or death rejecting him. 
All right, let's see what the reaction is. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees, so again, it was earlier, it was the chief priests and the elders. You can see that the Pharisees are intended here also. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them, (laughs) which is always like kind of humorous to me. I don't know if Matthew intends it. And although they were seeking to arrest him, I mean, this is just irony of irony, isn't it? He's just told them a parable about how you're going to reject me, arrest me, put me to death. And they're like, yeah, I think he's talking about us. Anyway, let's arrest him, reject him, and put him to death. <laughs> I mean, there are many, many ironies pointed out by the, by the gospel writers, when it, particularly when it comes to the passion. And this is no doubt one of them. But why? Why did they not then arrest him? They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So again, we also see that they, that they fear men, not God. And that's a recurrent theme throughout here, that Jesus fears God, not men. They fear men, but not God. Okay, now that gives us a little narrative pause. And really, I think the way that Matthew's constructed this, we should see those two parables as a unit, um, or at least like, let's say, chapter one, and then what follows in chapter 22 would be chapter two. I mean, there's a connection, but there's a huge pivot uh, because he's not going to ask them to condemn themselves. In the first two parables, the two parables of the vineyard in this section, both of which result in them condemning themselves. Now we're going to pivot to this wedding feast and this different uh, direction. I mean, many of the same themes, but a different direction and they don't condemn themselves. So before we do, let's pause there. Let's see if you have any thoughts. If you see anything I missed, I always love to hear that. Or um, if I confused you on any point. Yeah, please. Back in the beginning, uh, the parable of the tenants, uh, when the servants came, to the tenants to get the first fruit, to get the fruit, mm-hmm. essentially the rent. You indicated that those were the apostles that were killed. I thought it was always the prophets, or Old Testament prophets. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like, yeah, it probably did more harm than good even mentioning it. So the verb used for send is the apostelling verb. So to send. Uh, so that's the only reason I mentioned it. Clearly at this point, for, I mean, in particular for Jesus, remember, we've got these two lenses. Lens number one is Jesus actually saying the thing in, let's say, 33 AD, okay? He's very clearly referring to the prophets. There's no other option. Now, by the time Matthew writes this and stylizes this, he may well have the apostles at least hinted at, you know? So, like, yeah, I mean, in the same way that, you know, Gosh, I'm struggling to think of what would be like synonyms of sending um, in English. It's hard to do. I can't think off the top of my head about synonyms of sending. But let's say that there were three different expressions. He's choosing the one that's specific to the apostle language. That may be Matthew's way of hinting at that. But again, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill on that. Chronologically, the son would be Christ, and then the prophets came before. So if you're thinking in terms of uh, chronological. Yeah. Yeah, 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 of course. And it's very reminiscent of Jesus, you know, uh, where he just openly says, um, the prophets have been sent over and over to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the 
city that stones the prophets, right? Which, of course, is ironic and an ironic play on the name because Jerusalem is the city of Shalom, the city of peace, who, you know, kills the prophets and stones those whom the Lord sends. So there's tons of ironies, tons of ironies. The whole passion, I, I mean, I, you, I think you could do an entire Lenten sermon series, like six full weeks worth of sermons on the ironies of the passion. And it, it is definitely something drawn out by the evangelists themselves at many points. Yeah, please. I always thought that um, that it was referring to heaven. So, like, so Christians were the ones who fall on Jesus and were broken pieces, and those who don't believe are like those who are crushed. So, I was just wondering, is that a correct interpretation, or is there a third option, like Christians are the ones who are comfortable with Christ, not not mentioned? Yeah, not really. I mean, the yeah, the motif here is as the rock is judgment. So uh, it's judgment against those who have rejected it. I mean, those who approve of it would be the Christians and they don't fall into judgment because I mean, I just, in terms of the motif under no circumstances, would it be good to be shattered or broken into pieces or crushed? Yeah. So that's why it's a judgment. But if you receive it, you receive it as the cornerstone and you receive then joyfully, whatever is built upon that cornerstone, which is going to be the whole household of God. It's going to be the new kingdom, the new church, the new vineyard, that which does in fact bear fruit. Yeah. And, and that's all what we're part of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, so someone would have to like, sort of like try to put a homiletical point on top of that to try to make that make sense. Be true. It just wouldn't be good exegesis. Yeah. It's me this double uh, mention of fearing the crowds. They've already showed their hand. They don't fear God. They fear the crowds. Yeah. 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 Big motif there. Big motif. They're pushed around by the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and that's that's a motif that continues and bears itself out all the more. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, good enough to move on. Yeah. All right. So then, um, chapter twenty-two, and again, there isn't really a break here. So we are simply told. Um, in fact, in fact, there's a Greek word missing because we're told specifically and answering or and responding, apocrythes, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So in other words, we're, we're told in no uncertain terms that this isn't like a new audience. This follows right on the heels of. And he speaks to them in parables. Now, it could, that could indicate that there were more than this one spoken that day. But in any case, this is the one we have. An interesting change. I don't know what, if anything, to make of it. Jesus seems to use it interchangeably. But we're back to the kingdom or the reign of the heavens as opposed to the kingdom or reign of God. The kingdom of the heavens may be likened or may be compared is as a king, the word you'd expect there, Basileus, who gave a wedding feast for his son. All right, well, already we've got this set up because already you know this is the father and the son. (laughs) And already you know from the Old Testament the wedding motif, God being betrothed to his people, his people continually being unfaithful to him, him offering them a certificate of divorce, rejecting the betrothal, having them taken away by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, renewing the betrothal by bringing them back 
and promising a wedding that is to come. And of course, that wedding in the strict sense is what brings about the new heavens and the new earth. So just kind of a brief history of that wedding motif and all of that underlies this parable. Okay, and again, we have uh, maybe less obvious to us, but I'll try to point it out as we go. Uh, We have just some egregious things going on. Uh, More and more, Jesus' parables, uh, there are so many that a lot of Jesus' parables are meant to leave you with a bad taste in your mouth. They're left to make you having a sense of disgust. And that disgust is to drive you to be the opposite of the characters in the parables. It's very hard to preach because, you know, I mean, how many sermons have you heard that end on the downer note of disgust? (laughs) Few and far between, but that's how Jesus ends his preaching frequently. And in this case, it's no different. He's going to just leave off this whole sermonica section, section with a bad taste in our mouths. Okay, so there is this, uh, there's this king. He's throwing a wedding feast for his son. He sends his slaves out to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, I mean, okay, part of our problem, problem, part of our problem in reading this is we think way too instantaneously, you know, so they drove out and they got them and they all came that day and, you know, they got the meat out of the refrigerator and cooked it and, you know, it just doesn't work. So how this would actually go is weeks, sometimes months in advance, and this was just known at the time, and it makes perfect sense. There's no reason to doubt it. But if there was going to be a great feast, weeks, if not months ahead of time, the messengers would be sent out saying, this time, this day, this place. I mean, because you've got to gather all the animals, you've got to kill, you got to kill them. You got to butcher them. You got to cook them. You, I mean, it's just tons of stuff you got to do and it takes forever. And that first invite also gives you a sense for who's pledged to come. Otherwise you're not just going to slay. I mean, how many cattle are you going to slay to just bring this mob of people? You don't know. Okay. So the whole point that's sort of culturally understood that we're not ready to grasp is that at this point in time, the servants are already being sent out to those who who have already agreed. They've already RSVP'd. They've already gotten the initial invitation. They've said, we'll be there. And these messengers are coming, these messengers are coming out to say, it's ready. Okay? You RSVP'd, we've made your portion, it's all ready. So that when they say we're not coming, I mean it is an absolute spit in the eye. It is not only are you wasting the food and costing but you've already said yes, and now you're saying no, and your lack of presence is going to be an embarrassment to the host, especially if this happens in mass. So this rejection carries within it just a number of cultural implications of deep, deep insult, especially when, and not necessarily in this case, but elsewhere where this uh, parable is taught, I mean, to a minor degree here, the reasons or the excuses given are completely obscene excuses and are meant to only further the insult, you know, kind of like, kind of like, you know, um, I don't know. It'd be like something like on uh, coming up on Valentine's day. So it'd be like, you know, told your wife, you're going to take her out for dinner on Valentine's day. You got this thing set in advance and it comes time and she's all dressed up and ready to go. And you're not. And she's like, didn't we have a date? Didn't we have a plan? you're like, yeah, I thought I'd do something more important. Well, what's more important than that? 
Not even the Super Bowl. So the, the, the kind of excuse would be like, well, I'm going to go reorganize my screws out in the garage. <laughs> I mean, that's the nature of the excuses given. I mean, they're meant to be insulting excuses. Okay. So I want to give you that backdrop because I think it's really essential for, you know, straightening us out right from the go, how this is going down. Okay. So his servants go out to call those who were now notice they already were invited. There's your linguistic key to all of this to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And I love that translation. It's right. Not that they could not come. They would not come. Okay. That already would be like the end of the relationship. (laughs) But again, we have this outrageous king who's inviting all these people. So again, he sent other servants. And we've got, you know, that, that same motif repeating from the previous parable of, again, he sends his servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. Look, I've already laid out the expense. I've already gone to all this trouble. My oxen and my fatlings, my fat calves have been slaughtered. They're already dead. It's going to go to waste. And everything is ready. I mean, he's pleading with them. Hospitality to the max. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. Now, I think inherent in here is the rejection of the Jewish people of God. But also, I mean, in the church age, how can we not reflect on what priceless feast, what wedding feast, what slaughter has taken place, what fine food is laid out every Sunday morning, and what plea goes out to the world? Everything is prepared. Come eat and drink for the forgiveness of your sins. Come partake of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Come have everything, and the world is just like, pays it no attention. I think I'd rather go surfing, rather sleep in. Sorry, I'll go to Home Depot. Anything is more important. So I think that we can reflect on that too, but verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off. Now here's the first category. They pay no attention and they go off one to his farm, another to his business. This is the stuff that's more important. And of course, sermonically, you can put whatever you want there. I think that's the beauty of what Jesus does. He gave us preachers ample room to navigate there. All right. Well, the rest, here's the second category. Those would be the passive Sort of they pay no attention, they go their own way. That's the category one. But now verse six is category two. While the rest seized his servants, treated them hubristically, shamefully, and killed them. I mean, why on earth would they do that? Because to these, it wasn't enough to deliver insult. They so despise this king and his son that they just cannot help but do unto his servants what they would like to do unto him. Okay, at verse 7, now this will show you how screwed up we are in our American way of thinking and our rebellion, and we can't stand kings, and we can't stand authority, and we can't stand... So in verse 7, the king was angry. We immediate, <laughs> the immediate fleshly reaction is to be like, oh, 
That's not, you know, why would he be angry? But that's completely contrary to the way we should reflect on this. When we hear that the king was angry, our hearts should be like, yes, I'm angry too. I can't believe that they insulted this guy like this. It's payback time. You know, and there's movies like that that tap into that. Um, Braveheart's like one of the greatest revenge movies ever. You know, it all the whole setup is like this injustice is done to this dude and do this, you know, to his girl and to the people he loves. And then the rest of it is just kind of revenge porn, right? It's like when you're when the heads are getting hacked off, you're not like, oh, tiddlywinks, that wasn't very kind. You're like, yeah, you know. <laughs> so it's tapping into this. Now, uh, again, that that's like our sense of justice overdone. But it's tapping into this good thing that there is righteous anger and righteous indignation. And the king's anger here is noble and pure, and we're meant to ally ourselves with him. I can guarantee even the Pharisees at this point in the story are like, yes, it's the king's turn. So the king was angry. He sent out now not his servants, but his troops and destroyed Again, here, just like wiped off the face of the earth, obliterated, not even like killed, but just like turned into dust, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, this is a pretty direct reference to Jerusalem and 70 AD and the troops. Now, interesting, he calls them his troops. And that ties into the Sunday morning theology that the king of Psalm 2, the Yahweh's king, the Messiah, is the Lord of the world, whether we recognize it or not. And when one nation spanks another nation and we go, oh, what's Jesus doing about this? No, that's part of his rule. That's part of, that's precisely what he's doing. All troops are in effect his troops. Okay, so not to go off on that tangent, but this is very much like, look, the troops are going to come and destroy those murderers and burn their city. Well, that's exactly what happens in 70 AD. Okay, be that as it may, we continue with the narrative, verse 8. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding feast is ready. I mean, to those that weren't killed, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not axioi, were not worthy ones, were not worthy. So, you know, again, this kind of idea of like, well, no one's worthy, everyone's worthy. Yeah, there's a different way to understand that. There are, in fact, some that are unworthy. So what does he do then? Uh, Who are these first? Again, we have here the Jews who reject him. So go, therefore, into the main roads, into the highways and byways, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Now, these were not the first who were invited or who were called. So when the Jews reject the king, then the king goes out to the highways and byways to the Gentiles and calls them in. That's Jesus' point here. He invites those who were not previously invited. All right, verse 10, and those slaves went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. I love this, both bad Poneirus, which, by the way, when we were over at uh, the prostitutes, it's very similar language used. So the bad and the good. Which, again, gives us another category because we're used to thinking in these overly simplistic terms of like, well, you know, nobody's good. (laughs) It's true in a sense. I don't want to take away from that. 
There's also true in a sense that amongst the Gentiles, there's good people and bad people. There it is. It's in the Bible. You're allowed to talk that way. (laughs) All right. So bad and good among the Gentiles are, and I think this is a beautiful picture of the church because in the church, you are going to have people that have criminal records. You have people that have done scandalous scoundrel things. You're going to have good people and bad people. Um, all welcome to the feast, all sharing in that forgiveness of sins. So it's just the way it is. All right, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. And at least at this point, you know, the king is happy. He's gotten his way. It comes with great bitterness at his rejection and what he had to do to the murderers, but finally it looks as though it's going to be a happy ending. And yet there's one more wrinkle to it. I mean, so far, we're, we're to sympathize with the king and we're to rejoice with the king. And then verse 11, that will continue. But when the king came in to look at the gas, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's, now let's pause there, um, because that, as you can tell by the quotation mark, is the end of the parable proper. But again, our knee-jerk reaction, I think, the flesh's knee-jerk reaction is to say, this king is outrageously unjust and murderous, but that's not what's going on, okay? Now, I'm just going to give you what I think. The study note goes a step further. I don't think the study note's right. I don't care. It's fine. It's, it's, I mean, maybe they are. It doesn't matter to the point. But the study note says that the host handed out the, gar- handed out the wedding garments and that this man refused, the wedding gar- refused to wear the wedding garment he was handed. I mean, that fits our theology. It doesn't fit historical circumstances. This, guy's gonna, this dude's going to have like several hundred wedding garments. I mean, sorry, it just doesn't make sense. That's, that's a case of theology leading exegesis, not exegesis leading theology. Okay, but what would be the expectation? The expectation would be, hey, this message has gone out. You're going to, I mean, this would be like, I don't know, I, we don't really care all that much, but it, it would be like getting invited to um, a best friend's funeral, you know, or um, maybe, maybe to like, the White House for a dinner, or uh, to the to the CEO of the corporation you work for um, to sit at his table of honor. You know, it'd be that kind of thing where it's like, how are you going to dress up? And if you're going to show up in flip flops and cargo shorts and a wife beater tank top, like you're saying something. You're saying something. And so too to not show up appropriately dressed for the for the wedding of the king's son that doesn't accidentally happen. You're saying something. And so this man is found insulting the king. This wasn't an oops or an accident or he couldn't afford it. And I don't even think it was a rejection of like the king's like wear this. And he's like, no, although that's indicative of the attitude that he refused to even take the bare minimum to show the king honor. So, the king comes to him and says, friend, how did you get in here looking this way? Why are you dishonoring? I mean, this is the cultural pretext. Why are you dishonoring my son and myself and all the guests gathered here? And the man's speechlessness isn't to be taken as innocence. It's to be taken as insolence. He, he's not even going to answer the king. 
This is a man who is hubristic, who is filled with himself, who isn't going to conform to no one. I did it my way. I dressed my way. Take me as I am. Don't care. I'm here. Uh, the king himself comes and the man just goes, hey, how'd you get in here with inappropriately dressed? And at that, the king has him bound hands and feet and tossed out into the outer darkness. And the response of the people gathered there would have been, thanks for getting rid of that. <laughs> thanks for getting rid of that jerk. That's what the response of the people would have been. Okay. And that is likewise then our response. Okay. As the people who are brought into the feast. So in the first place, those who slew Christ, slew his apostles, don't want anything to do with them. When God's judgment falls upon them, great. I mean, sorry it happened. They were invited. They should have come, but they rejected and despised him. What happens to them happens. And when he finally gets around to dealing with their insult, good. He's just in his wrath. And then even when he invites those graciously who do not belong in the wedding feast, we Gentiles, and he invites um, us Gentiles in, and we're there. If there remain among us a hubristic man who wants to continue to insult the king and not be properly attired, and, not, and then finally he gets thrown out, good. I mean, the whole point of the heavenly reality is that we're finally free from all the nastiness, from all those who can't stand the king or his son. That's the nature of heaven. So it's really kind of, it can be a gut check as to like, whose team are you on? (laughs) And if that's how you want to take it, well and good. If that's your entry point into it, well and good. But again, this is yet another example of Jesus' parables where there is, there are characters or a character who are, your reaction to them is not to be filled with, the, the reaction that Jesus hopes you to have is not to be filled with empathy toward the man and with hatred toward the cruel king. Quite the opposite. To be on the side of this good and gracious and wonderful king who is continually has his face spat upon for no reason whatsoever and finally takes action so that you are to be disgusted by these villains. And if there was a quote-unquote moral of the story, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy who shows up at the wedding feast on your own terms, refusing the garment, sticking it to the king. When you get what's coming to you, nobody's going to cry. So don't be that guy. Give honor to whom honor is due. Okay. So again, now we haven't highlighted the gospel elements of this, but that's not really what Jesus is up to. He's preaching to the Pharisees and uh, the chief priests, and he's condemning them. They should know in no uncertain terms who they are. Obviously, there are many gospel elements we could draw out, but since I've already taken up an extra three minutes of your time, um, I just simply won't be able to draw all those out. We'll have, you'll have to listen to a sermon on this where the Lutheran preacher will undoubtedly draw out all the, all the various elements. Okay. So what would we say of this garment? I mean, if we were to be sermonic about it, it's the robe of Christ's righteousness that covers all your sins. Okay. In a sense, it's... Pastor? Yeah, oh. please. Oh, Yeah. You know, I just happened to read uh, C.F.W. Walter, his take on this parable last night, because it was for the one-year lecture. Mm-hmm. One-year lectionary, it was uh, the, the gospel reading yesterday. Yeah. And he, he looked at it. He took that last verse, which we didn't talk about, 
for many are called and few are chosen. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. keyed on that as a particular predestination uh, way of looking at it. And of course, he went into how, yes, that's true, but also everyone is everyone has an opportunity. Everyone's called. It's that sort of uh, two things pitted against one another, you know, that we can't really make sense of. But that's how he started it out with that verse 14, talking about this parable. Kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, fair point. And thank you. You drew attention to one of my deficits. I didn't even handle verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, So you can handle that in a systematic way, the way Walter was doing it, and you can do just fine with that. Since this is a class more focused on exegesis than like a systematic reflection, when Jesus says many are called, who are called? First, all the Jews are called. Then as they reject him, all the Gentiles are called. Many are called. Who actually ends up in the feast? I mean, relatively few. Or at least that's what Jesus would have us consider, given that there's mass rejection of him. Uh, Some accept, and even among those who accept, there are found a distinct minority, one in the case of the parable, uh, who are unworthy. So then many are called is obvious few end up in the right place and so if you go back to like just the rudiments of this language are elect or favored or even where they should be many are called but few end up where they should be where the lord wants them i actually think that that's exegetically speaking a better way of reading and understanding what jesus is actually saying there um Later on, if we want to freight that word with election and the doctrine of election and 2,000 years worth of uh, systematic discussion on the doctrine of election, fine, we can do that and we can do so fruitfully. And I have no doubt in my mind that Walther himself does so fruitfully. So don't understand me to, to be precluding that approach. But I do think it's doing more here with that with that approach than Jesus himself intends. Jesus himself intends to show, look, it goes everywhere. You know, and you could say here too, like, so where, I mean, if you want to reflect on election, where is the king saying, oh, you wanted to be here, but you're out? Uh, Not in the first part. It's specifically those who are invited who themselves say we're not coming. Okay. And then maybe in the last part where you've got the man who wants to be there, but then is thrown out, maybe he's one whom God hasn't elected, but why is he thrown out? Because he despises the king. So it's his own actions that cause him to be thrown out. So trying to prove like some sort of double election, I think in this text would be almost, it would be impossible. Um, if you want to do a single election, fine. Um, right. Yeah, fine. Um, but again, I'm just not really sure that Jesus is interested in a treatise on the doctrine of election here. That's, that's really more my point, but thank you for that reflection. I think it's a good one. Sure. Yeah, please. Sees the man with no wedding. That's it. Brad, how did you come here without a wedding? But is that a genuine beginning of friend? As if the man could have said, I'm sorry, uh, 
uh, please have mercy on me. Can I get it? Is that, is that sort of why it's you know, kind of a friendly question and it's the response that you pointed out, the silence, this insolence mm-hmm. that sort of finalizes yeah. Yeah. his destiny. But there would be an opportunity even then mm-hmm. for him to uh, repent and call repent. for mercy. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, I no, I think that that's a fair thing, and I mean, I would I would not hesitate to preach it in exactly that way. Um, it's it's distinctly a possibility within the text. The question would seem kind of disingenuous. There, there are yeah, there are. I believe that there are times where where Jesus or the characters that represent Jesus in the parable use friendly language in a hostile way, like in an ironic way. Um, so it's possible that he means this, like it's already determined, right? Um, but given the softness of that, your read, I think, is equally as valid, that it may be a genuine, hey, did you not have time to get, to get going here? And if the man would have said, have mercy on me, I don't have time. I mean, we, know, we also know three-dimensionally the king's heart because <laughs> we know who the king is. We know he would have accepted him, right? So, yeah. And I mean, and th- maybe that illustrates too, like, when we go before the judgment seat, God, the Father, and the Son, they're not going to pull a fast one on you. <laughs> they're not, not going to get you up there and rug pull you. Okay? That's not their nature. That's not their character. That's not their intent. And so neither is it the king's intent to just you know, nail this guy um, for the sake of nailing him. That's, you know, but if, yeah, if, you, if you insist upon doing things your way, not wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness, insulting the king and his son up until the end, well, then, yeah, you're going to get what you expect to get out of that. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. We are quite a bit over time, and I want to be respectful of everyone. I'm happy to continue the conversation, but let's uh, close with the Lord's Prayer so that folks who need to go can get on their homeward way. Our Father, who art in Lord, heaven, yeah. hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.